me uh, mention some things that are coming up. This coming Saturday is the Newcomer's Brunch at our house. We have those periodically throughout the year. So the next one is this coming Saturday at 10 a.m. at our place. We'd love to have you come. If you've never been to one, then consider yourself a newcomer. And we just need to know today, though, the final count on who all's coming. So if you haven't done so yet, stop at the Information Center, and they will give you an invitation that reminds you of what time, uh, gives you a map to our house, has our phone number on it, but they'll also put down your name and give that list to us so we know how much food to make. So do that today if you haven't uh, already. And then tonight and next Sunday night begin our annual servant seminars, we call them. And it's just a time for those who are members of our church to, to gather and think about the Lord's work and what it is we hope to accomplish uh, through the church in the coming, coming year. So we have the first one tonight at 4.30. Uh, the registration for that one is closed, but we have the same seminar offered next Sunday night, 4.30. And if you haven't registered for that and you can make it, we'd love to have you. Now, I say it's a time for our members, and it is, but if you have not joined our church but you're taking a good look at us and you'd like to know what we're about, this will help give you a good idea of what we're about. Uh, So it may be, in fact, if I were looking for a church, I would probably want to attend this thing. Uh, So we would be happy to have you. If uh, you want to come next week then, any of you members or non, uh, go to the Information Center and register. If you need child care for next week, let them know that as well because we're arranging that for those, those who need it. And then last announcement is two weeks from today is Easter, and on Easter we're going to have a modified schedule. Instead of our worship hour first and then our educational hour, Discovering God hour, this one, uh, we're just going to have our worship service and cafe community that day. So cafe community, our refreshment time, will start at 10.30, and then at 11 o'clock we will meet in here for our Easter worship service. So please make note of that. All right, everybody who wants one should have a notebook, and on page 20, we began a new section of our series on Biblical Worldview 101. And that new section up at the top says, Section 3, Reorientation. Now, I'll just briefly remind you or inform those who haven't been here what that reorientation idea means. We're looking at, as the name of the series suggests, biblical worldview. And a worldview is, as the the term suggests, your view of everything, your view of the world. It's your perspective on uh, the world. Well, obviously, there could not be a bigger topic than that, your view of everything. So how do you get your arms around that? And in order to get our arms around a biblical worldview a way of looking at the world from the perspective of Scripture. We believe, as Christians, God has given us Scripture to tell us His perspective. So if we have a biblical perspective, we really have God's view of the world. And how do you get your arms around that then? And we think in Scripture that there are three major categories uh, under which everything fits. And we've been looking at those, and now we're in the third of those three. The first one is the creation, or we called it orientation. It's who God is and what He expects from us. And then the second component of a biblical view of the world is uh, the fall, the entrance of sin into God's good world and how that has profoundly and negatively affected the people that God has made and the world, the, the environment, the creation that He has made. And we call that disorientation. 
That is who we are and what our problem is. So you have orientation and disorientation, creation, fall, and then, thankfully, it's not left there. From a biblical standpoint, from God's view of the world, He doesn't leave us in this disorientation with the effects of sin on ourselves and on the world, but rather He is actively engaged in making right what has gone wrong because of the fall. And that's why then the top of page 20 says section 3, reorientation. God is involved in reorienting His world to its original design. And we're looking at then over the next few weeks what that reorientation process involves. We're seeing that it involves making people different and reorienting us from our pattern of thinking and living to a new pattern of thinking and living. And so in Lesson 7, we started that third uh, section, reorientation. And there we talked about, in fact, the title of Lesson 7 is Putting Your Mind to It. In order for us to, in order for us to make, make right, in order for us to be made right, we have to get our minds right. In order for us to act right, we have to think right. Because ideas have consequences. Because belief determines behavior. And so here's the situation we find ourselves in as we look at God's work in reorienting, changing us, and reorienting and changing His world. There is clearly something wrong with the world, a la the second section, disorientation. But we, in order to now be made different, be made right from all that is wrong with the world, in order for that to happen, we have to have the ability in an ongoing way to see those things that are wrong with the world. So we saw in Lesson 7 that the Bible calls that discernment. That you're able to distinguish. That's what the word discern means. Able to distinguish God's thoughts from all others so that you can see what's good and true and beautiful and distinguish it from everything else. And that that ability to discern, to see clearly from day to day and week to week and year to year is something we saw in Lesson 7 that is developed over time. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14 says that by reason of use, practice, we develop this ability to see things clearly and distinguish the good from the bad. You have to have the ability to see things as they clearly are. And we see an example of this in Acts chapter 17. If you're not able to juggle your notebook and turn there, that's okay. You can listen as I read and take my word for it that I'm actually reading what's there. Or you can check up on me. And many of you are turning, which means you don't trust me and my feelings are hurt. You know, that's, uh, I, I heard a story of a little kid who asked his dad, why does everybody turn, you know, in their Bible? And he said, we don't trust the guy, so we've got to make sure he's telling the truth. On the other side, I heard about a young preacher who was really disconsolate about his first few sermons, and he had people falling asleep. And so he asked an older preacher, you know, what do you do about people falling asleep? And the older preacher said, don't worry about it. It means they trust you. So <laughs> I've got lots of people who trust me in our church, apparently. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. While he was waiting for them 
in Athens, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. The them is Timothy and Silas. If you were to read the previous chapters, you would find that Paul and his associates were going from city to city preaching the gospel. And he had summoned Timothy and Silas to meet him in Athens, Greece. Paul's there first. He's waiting for them. But while he was waiting, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, I point this out to you because here's a guy who had eyes to see. He's in this city and he sees it. He gets it. And verse 16 says he is greatly distressed. In fact, uh, the, 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 uh, he, the Greek word is the word from which we get paralyzed. He had a sort of con- convulsed. That was his reaction to what he saw in Athens, Greece. You say, well, the city was full of idols, according to verse 16. So, no wonder he had this reaction. But let me just ask you, what's your reaction to American culture? I mean, isn't the country full of idols? But you see, friends, very often we don't have eyes to see. We don't see it for what it is. We get accustomed to going along with it, imbibing it, participating in it. And we don't have the kind of reaction that the apostle had when he goes to Athens. But here was a guy who had eyes to see. He knew the good from the bad, the true from the beautiful. And if we're not careful, and this is why the Bible warns us so so very often, about being caught up in the world's system so that we lose our ability to see, so that our senses are blunted, so that we are desensitized to the idolatry that is all around us. But Paul had this almost violent reaction within himself. And in verse 17, that first word is important. It says, so. Connecting verse 17 with verse 16, because he saw this because he reacted internally this way. He took action. So, therefore, he reasoned with them in the synagogues. And as you go on to read this encounter between Paul and these philosophers in Athens, Greece, you'll see that he gives them the good news of the gospel, but he confronts them about their idolatry, about their worldliness. And so this is a searching truth for you and me. Do we see the world as God sees it? That's what a worldview is supposed to be about. Or do we just go along and get along? Have we become desensitized to the worldliness that is all around us? Well, Jesus said, My followers are in the world, but they are not to be of the world. John chapter 17. And Jesus said, here is how they will gradually become different from the world, how they will be reoriented to their original design. He said in verse 17 of John 17, as he prays to the Father, he says, sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth. So how are you, how am I going to gain these eyes to see? to see things as they really are as we are reoriented 
Jesus says it's through the word, which is truth. And by immersing ourselves in the word, Jesus says they will be sanctified. Sanctify them by thy truth. That word sanctified means set apart. So instead of being co-opted into the world, we will see the world from a biblical perspective because we're immersed in the word of God. We will be bothered as Paul was in Acts 17 by what we see. And it will motivate us to take action so that we are not absorbing our values from the culture. We're rather adopting our values from Scripture. You see the problem, don't you? You see how we can so easily fall into it and simply become a part of it and not see it as it truly is. And that's why I had you turn to page 20. I just want to remind you of the title at the top of Lesson 8. It says that uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you. And, of course, Jesus said the truth shall make you free. You'll be free to live the way you were made to live. But I say, you know, it'll make you odd as well. Why will it make you odd? Because that's what sanctifying does by definition. If sanctify means set apart, and it does. And if a minority of people are set apart, and they are. Following Jesus has always been a minority group. And it will be until he returns. So if those two things are true, you'll be odd. You will be marching to the beat of a different drummer, as you hear me say, a lot. We will be getting our orders and our approach to life from a, different, from a different source. But we're constantly warned in Scripture about the danger of being absorbed into the culture and its worldliness rather than being set apart or sanctified from it. And we left off on page 21 last week. Page 21. Looking at beginning to talk about values of the culture and then looking at those values of our culture from a biblical perspective so as to avoid being absorbed into those values. Now, we're going to continue that then. But one of the reasons that we have a very difficult time, besides our own struggle with sin, even after we become followers of Jesus, besides that, one of the reasons that we have a difficult time of identifying worldliness and removing ourselves from it in our thinking and our talking and our acting is because we don't have a good idea of what worldliness is. And so I've been trying to pound what it really is. You see, for many professing Christians, here's what worldliness is. Worldliness is doing anything that is contrary to an explicit command of Scripture. If, but if the Bible does not say don't do it, then it's okay to do. That's the approach of many Christians. If I can't find a verse that says don't do it, go for it. That, so, so worldliness is only doing this relatively narrow category of things that the Bible prohibits explicitly. 
And if it doesn't explicitly prohibit it, then it's cool to do it. You know, you know there are problems with this, it, was, it would seem. I mean, how many, how many of you think that God endorses um, snorting cocaine? I take it no one. But you don't have a verse. There is, you know, when, when Moses chiseled the Ten Commandments, there wasn't one that said, thou shalt not snort cocaine. Now, there are principles in Scripture that apply to abuse of body and mind that then in turn have to be applied, right? So if you take the, this narrow approach that says worldliness is only found in those things that are explicitly and directly prohibited by Scripture, you'll leave a lot of stuff you'll engage in that is worldly, right? So that's one false approach. But then there's, on the other side, there's another false approach. This is the one that I grew up with, many of you are familiar with. And that is, worldliness is whatever the world is doing. So if the world's doing it, it must be wrong. Well, that makes it pretty easy. I mean, I said in the title of Lesson 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd because sanctification means set apart and you're a minority and all that. But you don't have to go out of your way to be weird. I mean, I'm not saying that either. But many Christians, they would never say that, but they think that godliness and holiness, the opposite of worldliness, is for us to look as completely opposite the world as we possibly can. And the best way to do that is to say, if they're doing it, I'll do the opposite. And so, you know, these are people who sort of have a communal kind of isolated approach. And you can spot them in restaurants if they venture into a restaurant rather than just growing their own stuff on the, on the commune. <laughs> this is kind of an Amish, monastic, and even very often fundamentalist kind of an approach. Isolate. Look at what the world does. Do the opposite. We'll be holy. But see, that's a false definition of worldliness. Worldliness is not just what the world does. As I've tried to point out in this series, sometimes the world gets it right. And we should expect that sometimes the world, people in the world, unbelievers will get it right. Because they were made in the image of God. And because the Bible teaches something called common grace. So that people are not as bad as they could be. Thank the Lord. If they were, this would be a, hor a really horrible place to live. And so sometimes the world gets it right. So it's not so easy as to just say the world's doing it. So what do we have to do? We have to analyze the values that are being expressed in our culture at a given place and time. And whether or not those are fallen values or God's values. That's what we have to do. Because worldliness is this. Fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed at a given place at a given time in particular forms of culture. And we have the responsibility to actively then look at what our culture is doing and what our culture is presenting and ask ourselves in what it is presenting, it is, is it presenting common grace values or is it presenting fallen values? And if it fall in values, then we need to be sanctified from that. Now that's what the middle of page 21 is trying to help us to do.
to say what are the values expressed in our culture. And I put the first one there for us, wealth. I really mean materialism, you know, chasing after material things and valuing material things inordinately. And what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, the Bible speaks about riches and wealth 2,300 times, 2,300 verses in Scripture. And I've just given you a handful of those. And last week we saw as well, our, our culture values sensuality. Am I right about that? Fallen values expressed in particular cultural forms now. So that sensuality is going to look a particular way in 2013 America. Another culture may also value sensuality, but express that in a different way in a different place in 2013. And in 2023 or 33 America, we may still value sensuality and express it differently than we do now. This means in the place and the time in which you have been called by God to bring glory to Him, you have to regularly analyze the values that are being expressed then and there in the forms of the culture. This is why in one of the most famous, well-known verses on worldliness in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now here's, follow me. The most often used word for world in your New Testament is cosmos. Some of you knew that. We've said that. But in Romans 12, 2, it's actually a different word. It's the Greek word aeon, A-E-O-N, aeon. We get eons. It means age. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age. You see, because every age has its own expressions of worldliness. And that's why you then have to say, what is our age, our time, and our place? How is it expressing its worldliness through the culture in which we're called to serve God? And if you don't get that, if you don't get that worldliness is about values and that those values are expressed differently from one time and place to another, and that we have to analyze daily and weekly and yearly, constantly, what we're being exposed to and whether it is communicating fallen values or common grace values. If you don't get that, then you will become locked into a particular view of worldliness. You'll say worldliness is this, and ten years later... Worldliness may look completely different. This is why some of our kind of Bible-believing churches are, are missing it unnecessarily with our, the culture we're trying to reach. Because on the one hand, we do not want to become like the world in order to reach the world. But on the other hand, I, I can't reach this world if I'm still living in the 1950s world. And yet that's what many of our churches, in trying to be godly and holy, are doing because they have misdefined what worldliness is. Fallen values expressed 
in culture. So, sensuality, uh, selfish anger, you know, it's all about me. So selfishness, looking out for number one, is a value in our culture. Would anybody agree with that? And the Bible has much to say about that. Galatians chapter 5, the evidences of the sinful nature are listed there. Anger being one of those. Or celebrity is another value. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in your Bible speaks to the fact that the, the, the one celebrity we should have is God himself. It's not about me, Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter. It's about Christ. Or what about our culture valuing violence? Doesn't it value violence? And, and it expresses that violence. It expresses it in its TV shows, in its movies, in its music. So these are fallen values expressed in culture. And are you supposed to be participating in that? Well, let me help you. No. But we do. We get sucked into it. What does the Bible say about violence? Well, I'd begin with Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. God made man in his image. And anything that gratuitously glorifies the destruction of that image is contrary to God's values, right? Anything that glorifies the killing of image bearers is contrary to God's values. And yet we've got generations, a generation of young men particularly, who spend hours and hours and hours playing violent video games. That's our culture. Or what about John chapter 8 and verse 44 where Jesus says Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He kills and destroys. It is Satan's objective to kill that which is precious and valued by God. Certainly his objective to harm that which reflects God, that which bears God's image. And so any glorifying of that is something that we would stay away from because those are fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values, not common grace values. That's the way, then, you do this kind of analysis. Now, it means, I said last week, and I ran out because I knew I'd be harmed if I didn't, but I said, you know, that means you need to like, look at the groups you listen to and the stuff you do, and analyze that. And you even need to look at the Christian groups. I said that last week. Because too many Christians think if it's not explicitly prohibited in Scripture, it's okay. So then it's okay to emulate the world's values expressed in culture in the way we present ourselves. They think. And so I mentioned a number of genres of music that are contemporary. Now, I'm an old guy now, so what's contemporary to me? And if you were here last week, you remember me struggling, you know, to come up with. So, I mean, I said rock and roll, but, you know, it's not rock and roll so much now. It's, you know, is it hip-hop? And I'm like 20 years late on that. What are we calling it now? I don't really know. But the point is, all of every cultural expression we have to analyze. 
common grace values, fallen values. And I wasn't, and here is, I got some questions about this. I wasn't focusing on a particular genre of music, type, category of music. I was simply saying all of those have to be analyzed. And Christians shouldn't emulate those that are seeking to emulate the world. So, you know, I've already said I'm an old guy. You already know that, so. I mean, there was, and maybe there still is, I don't know, but there was, right, something called like gangsta rap. Now, if you call it gangsta, I'm just thinking these are not common grace values. That's just what I'm thinking. So if gangsta people look a particular way, you don't want to then start a group like Gangsters for Jesus <laughs> with your, and I started to say album cover, <laughs> but with your CD sleeve or whatever it is, with a picture of you looking like a gangsta dude. Right? I saw, uh, I saw a group a few years ago, Christian group, Christian group, advertising itself this way. Sheep in wolves' clothing. We're sheep, but we're using the stuff of the wolves. Well, why? Because we want wolves to like us. And you got, and the church has to, you got to make a decision about this. Who are you most interested in approving you? If you are most interested in the culture approving you, then you want them to like us. And whatever they do, we'll do, as long as it's not explicitly prohibited in Scripture. And I'm just saying that the, the one we want to like us and approve us most is first and foremost God. And then we express common grace values. And by the way, the common grace values that we are able to express, let alone the special grace values of forgiveness and mercy that we are able to express at any given place in any given time, those are actually quite attractive. You know that? In fact, I'll be talking about that at our servant seminars tonight and next week. We actually really do have a good product to offer. And we don't and we don't have to dress it up in wolf's clothing. My car is warming up. I'm leaving. <laughs> so, everybody clear? I think we beat that up. So that's what worldliness is. That's what common grace values are. And we have to engage our minds and analyze at our place and our time whether what the culture is presenting is a form of common grace values or fallen values. Now, it's the Word of God that is the touchstone, the standard, that is going to help us see our culture from God's perspective rather than the world's. Sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth, says Jesus. So that's why on page 21 I say, in order for the believer to effectively evaluate the values of the culture, she must be immersed in the word of God.
I'll just say this. I used to teach teenagers years ago. And uh, I would like a dollar, if I had a dollar for every time a teenager, and now those teenagers grow up and, and don't mature that much, and so even adults say this stuff as well, if they don't break out of this pattern. If I had a dollar for every time I was told this, we could have added on, we could have bought this building a long time ago. Okay? I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, teenager, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's just fill in the blank. I don't see anything wrong with it. Let me just tell you something, dear friend. If you are not immersed in the Word of God regularly, you won't see anything wrong with it. It is only the Word of God that gives you the different perspective. And so it is not just my opinion versus your opinion. It's not just what do you, how does it grab you, how does it hit you. But rather it is us, as best we can before our God, seeking His will in His Word, seeking to see His character emulated, presented there so that we can emulate it. And then when we do that, apply what we see there to what we see in the culture. So, in order for the believer to effectively evaluate the value, she must be immersed in the Word. According to Jesus, we're sanctified, that is, made holy by the Word. Therefore, the Scriptures, when they are accompanied by the work of the Spirit, are the most potent change agent in the universe. And how do the Scriptures function to change us? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 are the most well-known verses in the Bible about the Bible. And they give a four-step change process. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for four things. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, those four things are in sequential, logical order. If you reverse that order, it doesn't work. You see, the the second one is rebuking. As we're going to see, the word rebuke is the same word for convict. But see, you can't be convicted before you're taught. So you're taught, and then as a result of being taught, now you're convicted. Or the third one is corrected. Well, you can't be corrected until you see what's wrong. So they're in a logical sequence of teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. Four steps. We've got five minutes, one minute each for these four steps. We will continue it next week. Yikes. We will never finish this series. Step one, teaching. A confrontation with truth. And I say at the bottom of page 21, the content of the Word of God, the Bible, is the catalyst for change. The content of the Word of God, that is, what the Word of God teaches is then the catalyst, the motivation for us to change. Now, how so? Bottom of page 21, because the Bible acts as a mirror for us. It shows us ourselves. You know, because the Bible, even though it's an old book, the last book of the Bible written 2,000 years ago. But because the human authors were superintended by God, because it's God's book, even though it's old, it's still relevant. Because God knows stuff, like everything. 
And he knows you and he knows me. And he knows you and he knows me better than we know ourselves. And that's why Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, the word of God is alive and it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Why? Because it's God's instrument. And it acts then as this mirror. And when we compare ourselves to the absolutely righteous standards of the Word of God, as sinful people, we usually observe a gap. And so you have passages in the Word of God, like at the top of page 22, that instruct us about seeing the gap and then acting based on that catalyst, that motivation, seeing God's holy standards, seeing where we are, and then taking measures to reduce that gap. But notice James chapter 1 compares Scripture to a mirror. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So I, you, we've got to be immersed in the Word in order to see the difference, the stark difference between the values of the world and what is valued by God. And there will always be a gap when we look into the Word. That's why I call it a confrontation with truth when I'm taught the Word. And the content of the Word, I say secondly and lastly for today, is exhaustive. You see, the Bible covers everything. Because God wrote it and because God knows everything, God knows what we need. He, as I said earlier, knows us better than we know ourselves. And so the fact that the Bible is an old book is not a hindrance in the least if it's written by an omniscient God, an all-knowing God, who knows as much what I need in 2013 as what John, who wrote the last book of the Bible, needed in the first century. And so it is relevant for all time because our God knows what we need. And it addresses everything we need. That's what I mean when I say it's exhaustive. Now, how so? I say there, the Bible does not address every issue of life directly. And so this is where our friends who say, you know, worldliness is only in doing something that's explicitly prohibited in Scripture. This is where they get it wrong. The Bible does not address every issue directly. But it does address every issue. Directly or indirectly. That is, all issues are covered in Scripture, either in precept or in principle. And that is why verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for these four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for how many good works? every good work. How can the Bible say that it equips you for every good work? Here's how. Because it covers everything, directly or indirectly, precept or in principle. 
Now, we're going to see in the next lesson how we apply those principles. But for now, the Word of God is what teaches us God's values. And the more I'm immersed in that, the more I see the contrast between that and the values immersed and presented in our culture. And the Word of God covers everything, directly or indirectly. All right. We'll see the next three of those over the next three weeks or something. But we've got to quit because the nursery people will kill me if I don't adjourn right around noon, okay? And they will kill you if you don't get your kids from the nursery 30 seconds after I say amen, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the grace that is demonstrated in giving us Your Word. It is a matter of grace because You could leave us to figure it out on our own. But You are a gracious God, and You have given us light for darkness. Lord, we have got to avail ourselves of the light that You have given. And so help us as a church to stand upon the Word of God. Help us to be the family of God, but always built on the Word of God to the glory of God. Help us as individual believers in the circles of influence that you in your sovereignty have assigned to us, where we work, where we live, where we leisure. Lord, help us to live the principles of your Word. May we be people who are immersed in the Word of God and are vigilant to discern the difference between good and evil light and darkness, true, beautiful, versus that which is false and ugly to you. Help us to practice that this week, and we ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.